perfect. I mean, I'm not here to shame people or anything like that, but just just an observation. So we're uh, we're continuing our, our study in the in the book of Acts, and we this is our third week actually in looking at Peter's preaching, the first gospel presentation after the resurrection of Christ. This happened on the day of Pentecost. And if you'll recall, the day of Pentecost was, of course, 50 days after the resurrection of, of Christ. And, which, and it occurs 50 days after Passover. And it is a celebration of, it's a harvest celebration. It's a celebration of first fruits. I think that's important. No, I don't think it's important. I know it's important. Um, that it is a, a uh, festival of first fruits. That is, um, the farmers would bring in the first of their crop, and that would symbolize, or um, in faith we are saying, here's the first of my crop, but it's not the entirety of the crop. It's only the first part of it. This first part guarantees that there is a future harvest. So it should be no surprise to us on the day of Pentecost, we're going to see um, a harvest, a harvest of people coming to know Christ. Three, as we get to the end of our message today, 3,000 people will call upon the name of the Lord. This is the first fruits. It is a guarantee that more people will hear the gospel and be saved. This is just the beginning of the church, but it's very, very um, uh, important that we understand the festival that's going on here, um, it is more than a barley harvest or a wheat harvest. It is the harvest of souls. So it's no mistake or no accident that God poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. It is the day that the church began. And it began with this unexplained phenomenon. We hear the roaring of a rushing wind, but there is no wind. There are Tongues of fire distributing themselves on each of the individual of the 120 believers who were gathered together in an upper room. And they all began to speak in other languages. And in fact, it, uh, the people are surprised. The people are gathered together and hear them speaking. They're saying, wait a second, we hear them in our own dialect. So not only is it just language, but it's actually uh, very specific dialects. And so we, how is it that we understand these Galileans who were untrained backwards, uneducated individuals speaking in our own language and speaking in our own dialect. And so it is, it is this event, this event where the Spirit of God is poured out on these 120 people and they began and there's this supernatural phenomenon and it prompts the people in the crowd to ask this question, what's going on? How do you explain this? What does this mean? And so Peter then steps up and he begins to explain what all of this phenomenon is about. And he uses scripture to do it. Here's one of the things I want us to keep in mind as we're going through this, especially when we get to the place where 3,000 people come um, to faith and are saved um, at the end of Peter's sermon. I want you to understand that it was the gospel preaching that brought salvation. There were these incredible, miraculous things. Like I said, the wind, the sound of the wind, and fire being distributed upon each of the 120 individuals, and the speaking in other languages. This was amazing, but it was the preaching of the gospel that brought salvation. Let us never forget that it is the preaching of the gospel that brought in 
3,000 souls that day. Well, it was God who brought in the 3,000 souls that day, but it was through the means of the gospel being proclaimed. And so Peter now was, the disciples were told by Jesus, listen, not many days from now, the promise of the Father is coming. And when the promise of the Father comes, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And now Peter who was afraid of a little slave girl 50 days earlier, now boldly stands and proclaims perhaps one of the greatest evangelistic sermons ever proclaimed. And so in this, the people are asking, what does this mean? And Peter begins to explain uh, the events. He explains what's going on. But more importantly than explaining what's going on, he's explaining the who behind the what. Because the what is, well, people are doing this, but it is all because of the resurrected Christ that any of this um, phenomenon is occurring. And here's what he explains. He explains that what you're experiencing, what you, men of Israel, this is what you're experiencing. You want to know what's going on. I'm here to tell you that this is what Joel talked about, the prophet Joel. So Peter um, goes back to Scripture and he interprets the events through God's word. And he says, this is what Joel said. Joel said that in the last days, this would happen. So Peter's explaining, we are now living in the last days. These are the end times, if you will, because these are the messianic. This is the messianic age. It is the age of Messiah. Joel said that when Messiah comes in the last days, this type of these phenomenon would take place. And so the end times, the last days have arrived. This is the days of the Messiah. And of course, then the next question would be then, well, who's the Messiah? If these are the last days, the Messiah has come. Who is he? And Peter, thoughtfully, provides that answer. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have despised and killed. This is the Messiah. This Jesus, whom you despised, whom you killed. And by the way, you fulfilled God's plans and purposes in doing it. This Jesus is the Messiah. So what's going on? What's going on is God is fulfilling his promises that these are the last days. These are the days of the Messiah. And Jesus is that Messiah who has been proclaimed. So that's just a quick review of where we've been. Those two sermons are on the Internet. You can go ahead and listen to them at sermon.net slash C-O-R-P um, to, to catch you up if you... Uh, just need to remind yourself or haven't heard that. So here's where we're going to go um, today. Just a quick preview. Peter's going to continue his, his, uh, his sermon, but he's going to really hone in on the person of Jesus Christ. And he's going to employ two Old Testament passages to give evidence that the Messiah would rise from the dead. How do we know Jesus is the Messiah? Because he rose from the dead. This is what the old, this is what the prophet said. This is what um, the Old Testament tells us. The Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would rise from the dead. And of course, you may ask the question, really, where does it say that? Well, it's good that you're here today because Peter is going to explain exactly where Scripture tells us that Messiah would rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. You're saying, I've read the Old Testament I'm, and I'm reading it in my read through the Bible in a year, and I haven't seen that place yet. Well, good. Peter will explain that. So he's going to explain that Jesus is the, the Messiah. And here's the great thing. At the very end of this sermon, the, the people who are standing around ask the question, well, then what do we do? If these are the last days, 
And if Jesus is the Messiah and he has risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father and we're the ones who killed him, what do we do? So that's the direction I'm going to go today. So let's go ahead and follow along with me as I read our text in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 41. And then we'll, uh, we'll look at this a little bit more closely. Um, I'm very excited. This is an, an awesome passage of text. Listen to God's inerrant word. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This ends the reading of God's holy word. So let's just begin this with this, um, this, that God is attesting or confirming or declaring genuine um, through the resurrection. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. We know that because he was raised from the dead. That is, Jesus, as I said, was confirmed to be true by God through miracles. You remember in verse 22, Peter is saying, this Jesus, God attested or confirmed that he was truly the Messiah by the, very, by, the, by the numerous miracles that he did. And we talked about that last week. The miracles confirmed who he was. Things like he forgave sins. He is the Lord over um, death. He raises the dead. He's the Lord over nature. He calms the sea. He's the Lord over hell by casting out demons. He is the Lord of everything. There is nothing over which Jesus is not Lord. He did that. God affirmed or attested that Jesus is the genuine Son of God through the miracles that he did. But the final and the most convincing confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is is that God raised him from the dead according to the Scriptures. In other words, one of the things I do want to point out is how scripturally oriented or how, how central the Bible is to Peter's sermon. And so 
Peter then demonstrates that Scripture says that Jesus would rise from the dead. And he brings forth to us this passage in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And it might be a passage that if you read, you may not immediately associate with Jesus rising from the dead. But but note what's going on. First of all, it says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in my body. This is a psalm that was written by David. Now, because of the first person, that is I, we would assume that this is David speaking. So let's just assume that for a moment. But whoever this, this person is, whoever is the I, the first person in this, we see that it is the presence of Yahweh that enables the speaker to stand firm in the midst of his idolatrous enemies. So there are enemies around me. They have formed idols and they are coming against me. But because God is with me, I can stand. I stand firm firm and I am not shaken because God's presence enables me to stand firm. And then because of the presence of Yahweh, the speaker is able to rejoice even though he stands alone. Therefore, my heart's glad and my tongue rejoice. My flesh will also dwell in hope even though nobody stands with me because Yahweh is with me in the midst of my enemies. I stand firm and I rejoice. It's an amazing thing. I can rejoice even though I am utterly and completely forsaken because God is with me. And then the psalmist says this, you, that is God, you God, will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now all of a sudden, Peter is pointing out, this person cannot be David. It's impossible for it to be David. It must be somebody else. Why? Because Peter points out, listen, David died. His tomb is with us. We, we can go over to his tomb and we can be there. His tomb is David died and, his, and he, his body did corrupt. It broke down as all bodies do. This, whoever this speaker is, it is not David. In the psalm, Peter, Peter is saying, in this psalm, David is functioning as a prophet. And he's speaking of someone else. He is speaking of someone else, actually speaking of one of his sons, is what Peter says. He's speaking of one of David's sons who will sit upon David's throne and reign forever. That was the promise to David. One of your descendants will sit on your throne and will reign forever and ever. So David is now foretelling that there is going to be somebody from my line, from my lineage, my heritage who is going to come and reign forever and ever, and he will never die. He will be raised from the dead, and his his soul will not be left to Hades, and his body will never see corruption. That is somebody coming after me. And so David um, is speaking now as a prophet of somebody who's going to come, one of his sons who's going to come after him. Do you see where Peter is going with this message? Are 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 you tracking with Peter? You may not be tracking with me track with David. So so Peter is saying, listen, this psalm is David not speaking as David, but David functioning as a prophet and speaking about somebody else, a descendant who would overcome death and be seated on the Davidic throne and reign forever and ever. Let me just veer off and give us a a little uh, lesson on understanding Scripture, because Peter interprets this scripture in light of Jesus. That is, and I think he learned that from Jesus, who in Luke 24 taught the disciples. 
all the scriptures point to me. The Psalms, the prophets, and the law, they're all about me. And he said this in the book of John to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, don't you know they're about me? So Peter, now filled with the Spirit, having been trained by Christ, goes back and sees in the psalm, this isn't talking about David, this is talking about Jesus. They all are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I think Peter's mind is open going, oh, wait a second, I understand exactly what's going on here. This is talking, David is functioning as a prophet, speaking about a son of David who will reign forever and ever and ever. David is referring to the Christ. David prophesied about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Peter says, listen, what's going on here is something that Joel talked about, that the Spirit would be poured out on your sons and your daughters, and that this indicates that this is the days of the Messiah. This, these are the last days, the days when the Messiah comes. This Jesus is that Messiah. Let me prove it, because this Jesus is affirmed by God, certified by God as the Messiah because he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Give me somebody else who's risen from the dead. Put him out there. Let's see him. Who else has risen from the dead? Okay, nobody. This Jesus is of the heritage and the line of David. He did rise from the dead. Who is this person who rose from the dead? Peter says, this Jesus. God raised him up, and I love this, as we are all witnesses. That's just a great... Well, remember, this is about 53 days after the death of Christ. 50 days after the resurrection. And Peter says, we're witnesses. Here's one of the interesting things about the resurrection, or at least about the the death and resurrection of, of Christ. The empty tomb was never in dispute. The empty tomb was never in dispute. When you look at all of the objections unbelievers have had against Christianity, even very, very early on, even in the late first century, early second century, nobody denied the empty tomb. They may have given crazy reasons why the tomb was empty, but nobody denied the empty tomb. And the people here are not denying the empty tomb. In fact, if the tomb isn't empty, just walk over a few yards and go get the body. Nobody's disputing the empty tomb. And so, listen, we're witnesses. Me and the 120 here, we have seen the risen Christ. And just so you know, you know that the tomb is empty. If anybody doesn't think so, listen, it's real easy just to go walk over to, the, to where he was buried and drag him out. There's no body there. God raised him up. The empty tomb is not in dispute. And then Peter goes on and says, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right-hand side of the Father. In other words, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then I guess our next question is, well, then where is he now? Peter answers that question. He's seated in glory at the right-hand side of the Father. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into heavens, but David did say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So where is Jesus now? Since God raised him from the dead, Jesus has ascended and is seated at the place of authority at the right hand of the Father. Not David. David didn't do this. David's still in the tomb. We can go to his tomb. Jesus is not in his tomb. Why? Because he's at the right hand side of the Father, because God raised him up. He's now reigning from this place of authority and he is now pouring out the Spirit. Remember, Messiah is the one who possesses the Spirit and distributes the Spirit. Jesus is now reigning from heaven 
in his thro- on his throne, and he is now distributing the Spirit of God to the people of God. That's what you're seeing. So the things you're seeing here today fulfill everything that God has been promising. This is what Joel said would happen. This is what David said would happen. This Jesus, whom you crucified, died, rose again, seated on the throne next at the right-hand side of the Father, distributing his spirit to all who um, will follow him. And we now are empowered and filled with God's spirit, just as was promised. So what you're seeing and hearing today is God fulfilling his messianic purposes. And he told you that this was what's going to happen. So just a quick note on how Peter concludes his sermon. Let all the house of Israel, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I love he keeps saying this Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is or how do we view this Jesus whom you crucified? He is both Lord and Christ. Christ has the idea is, is the idea of Messiah, but it's the anointed one. He is the anointed one who would deliver his people. The one that Israel and the people of Israel had been waiting for over for year after year after year, waiting for the Christ, waiting for the anointed one. This Jesus is that anointed Messiah whom you have been waiting. But he is also Lord, meaning our very basic definition of Lord is he is boss. Jesus is the boss and he is the Messiah. He rules over all. And I know there's this ongoing dispute. I don't even know why it's a debate or a discussion that, you know, is Jesus um, Savior or Lord? Well, he's both right here. He is both Savior and Lord. You cannot have one without the other. I know people want to have Jesus as Savior so that they can, but not Lord, so they can go ahead and live however they want. But Jesus is the owner of everything. And here Peter says, God raised him from the dead. He is both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. In other words, your plans did not derail God's plans. God made him Lord and Christ. You tried to crucify him. Well, you did crucify him. You tried to snuff out his, his testimony, his words, his work. You just need to understand, you came up against one much greater and grander and bigger than you. And actually, your plans actually fulfilled God's eternal purposes. And God worked in Jesus. You crucified him. God raised him up and made him Lord in Christ. And now their um, response, what do we do? They're cut to the heart. You should note that this is a, a passive verb. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God that cut their heart. They did not cut their own heart. They did not convict themselves. This idea of being cut to the heart is the idea of being convicted, being just devastated. They're seeing the guilt of their sin. This is a divine work. It is a work of the Holy Spirit who has now come and empowered Peter to preach this awesome sermon. And they are cut to the heart and they ask, what do we do? Is there any hope for us? We are the ones who murdered the Christ. We are the ones who committed this horrible crime. We are the ones who have been waiting for centuries for Messiah to come. And then when he comes, what do we do? We kill him. What do we do? Is there any hope? Are we doomed to forever face the wrath of a holy God? Are we forever enemies of God and without hope? Is there a remedy? And Peter comes along. Oh man, there's a promise for you. Yes, there's hope. Yes, you committed a horrible crime. 
that your horrible crime cannot outstrip God's incredible mercy. So what do we do? What do we do? Repent and be baptized, every single one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the same Holy Spirit. Let's talk about this, because this passage of text brings up numerous questions and some confusion, which I hope to clarify today. Repent and be baptized. Repent is simple. That is, turn from your sins. That is the proper response to Peter's sermon. What do we do? We have crucified the Lord of glory. What do we do? Repent. Turn away from your sin. And that's the message that we declare to everybody. If you are here today and you have never called upon the name of the Lord, that's what it means to be a Christian. To turn away from your sins. We'll talk about turning to Christ. Repent. There is no Christianity without repentance. Jesus' first sermon, repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist's first sermon, repent and believe the gospel. Peter's sermon, repent and be baptized. That is the proper response. If you're wondering and you hear the gospel and you're wondering, well, what do I do with it? I'm cut to the heart. I see that my actions put the Lord of glory on a cross on Calvary over 2,000 years ago. What do I do? The proper response is turn from your sins and we're going to ask you to call upon the name of the Lord. So that's the first one. Probably no real uh, difficulty there. The second one, we have some, some challenges and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Many, there are some and even some denominations who would use this statement to say that baptism is necessary for regeneration. That one must be baptized in order to be regenerated. I had a great friend in one of my seminars or a classmate in one of my seminars and uh, he was a church of Christ and they would believe in baptismal regeneration. That is, unless you are baptized in their church in the name of Jesus, unless that happens, you're not saved, which means he was sitting in a room full of people who were not saved and he would say so. Um, Baptized here is is talking about one, it's dealing with one's public identification. In other words, it is signifying your repentance. That is, you are identifying with the one whom you crucified. See, if, if one needed to be baptized to be saved, first of all, it would, um, you might get that from this passage of Scripture, but remember, Scripture interprets Scripture, doesn't it? That's the only scripture we have. You might be able to make a good case, but because that's not the only scripture we have, we have dozens of other passages of text. We can conclude that this is not talking about one is saved through being baptized because we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Salvation is a gift. And remember when Paul was going about, and I think it's in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Some of you ladies are studying 1 Corinthians, so you can help me on this. And he goes around, and what does Paul say? He says, I baptize none of you. Well, except for so-and-so and so-and-so and and maybe somebody else. Well, if Paul, the great evangelist, baptized none of them, if baptism was necessary for regeneration, then he's a horrible person. I brought you the gospel, but I left you in your sin. Paul himself says, I baptize none of you except for a few of you. So... We should note that baptism has to do with here, has to do with one's public identification. Here you are identifying with the one you crucified. In other words, you're saying, I acknowledge his claims. I'm subscribing to his teaching and I'm relying upon his merits. When we baptize people, we're saying, I identify with Christ now. I am acknowledging who he claims to be. He claims to be both Lord and Christ. I acknowledge that. I am subscribing to his teaching. I'm relying on his, on his merits. And don't forget this. 
But who's Peter speaking to? He's speaking to men of Israel, good Jews. Be baptized because only Gentiles needed to be baptized. Only filthy dog sinners needed to be baptized. And Peter's saying, no, you too need to be identified with the person of Jesus Christ. So repent and be identified with Christ. And you will... um, Let me also just real quickly point out in, in in the book of Acts, as we go through the book of Acts, you will not find unbaptized believers. So I, I don't know why believers might not be baptized. I can't imagine. I have had, heard people, they, nobody even told them to be baptized. So there is no such thing in the Bible as an unbaptized believer. At least in the New Testament, some of you are saying, well, what about the thief on the cross? That was kind of under the old system. Jesus hadn't risen from the dead yet. But now, in the church age, all believers are baptized. So if you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, you should talk. So repent and be baptized in two benefits. There are going to be two things given to you. The first one is be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now here we have another problem, don't we? Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. People say, so I need to be baptized in order to be forgiven. This little word, this little Greek word, ice, E-I-S, has about, I don't know, I think I read somewhere there were 80 different usages. I don't know if I can go that far, but there are at least a few dozen uses usages for this little preposition, ice. So what does it mean here? It doesn't mean, I don't think it means, be baptized for the purpose of having your sins forgiven, but rather be baptized because your sins are already forgiven. And let me use my little wanted poster up here as a good illustration. Wanted, dead or alive, well, let's just say alive. Um, For cattle rustling. Now that person is not wanted for the purpose of, we, we need somebody to rustle cattle for us. He is wanted so that he can rustle cattle for us. No, he's wanted because he's a cattle rustler. Does that make sense? Not for the purpose of rustling cattle, but because he is a cattle rustler. So one is baptized not for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins, but because of their sins already being forgiven. In other words, baptism confesses what has already occurred. Does that make sense? Does does that help? So when somebody says, well, we need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and see it says so right there in the book of Acts, you need to understand that word for doesn't mean for the purpose of having your sins forgiven, but because your sins have already been forgiven. And you can use the little wanted poster, um, wanted for murder. Well, I'm not wanting you for the purpose of committing murder, I want you because you have already committed murder. Forgiveness, baptized for the forgiveness, not so that your sins will be forgiveness, forgiven, but because your sins have already been forgiven. So the first gift that is given, what do we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, because your sins are forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think those two things go together as well. That when your sins are forgiven, you are given the Holy Spirit as well. One of the things I want you to note is that um, this word gift of the Holy Spirit and this word gift is singular. Not be baptized for the forgiveness of sin and you will receive the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit, but you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's significant. Why? Because what is the gift? The gift is the Holy Spirit. The gift isn't some supernatural ability to do something. The gift is the Holy Spirit himself. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit. 
So repent and be baptized, every one of you, because your sins have been forgiven and you will receive the Holy Spirit. When you come to Christ, the, 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 that moment that you are justified, that you are regenerated, God imparts Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is the giver of the Holy Spirit, in that moment gives you the Holy Spirit. Prior to that, you didn't have the Holy Spirit. Now you do. When one repents, one is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, one has experienced the regeneration is being indwelt, united, transformed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now dwelling in the person. And so everybody who is saved has the Holy Spirit. And let me just say, you have all of the Holy Spirit. Though at one time I held the view, I now reject the view that you get a part of the Holy Spirit and then later, subsequent to salvation, you get more of the Holy Spirit if you pray or something. The Bible tells us very clearly, Paul tells us in Colossians, in him, that is in Christ, you are complete. And then Peter tells us that in him, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. You are not lacking anything. So when you are saved, you get all of the Holy Spirit. It isn't like, well, I'll give you a little bit now and, you know, maybe later you'll get some more if you pray hard enough and ask for it. No, we all have the Holy Spirit. People always call and they want to know about our church. Well, they don't always call, but when they do call, often one of the questions I get is, are you spirit-filled? To which I say yes. Because there's no non-spirit-filled Christian. that They don't exist. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul even says in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to him. Are you spirit-filled? Absolutely. Then I have to qualify what I mean because I know that we mean two different things. I don't want to mislead them and them come here thinking that we're a certain type of a church that, um, that we aren't. Um, so I say, yes, but here's what I mean by that. Of course we're spirit-filled. We're Christians. Those two things. So, repent and be baptized because you've been forgiven of your sins and you will get God himself. How awesome is that? Is there any hope for us? Yeah, there's hope, but it's even better than that. Not only will you be forgiven of your sins, but God will take up residence and dwell in you just like you're seeing here today. That's the promise. This is an awesome sermon. There's hope. And then Peter takes it further. And by the way, this promise is for everybody. For all that God, notice this word, that God calls to himself. And boy, I could go off on that. I won't. But I'll just say here, irrespective of time, place, and whatever, God will... So it's not just for Jews and Gentiles, and it's not just for um, men. It's for you and your sons and your daughters and everybody, and it's for Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, wherever you go, this promise stands. That's a message we can take wherever we go. You can take it to the doctor's office with you, and you can say the promise of God is for you. You can take it to the, to the jungles of Borneo, and you can make this promise. It is for them. This promise stands, and it's for everybody who will call upon, who God calls to himself. I want you to look how we've come full circle from the beginning of the sermon. The promise of Joel, that is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is accomplished in Christ. God made this Jesus Lord and is appropriated when one repents with the assurance that the gift of salvation is for those who God called to himself. This is an awesome, I think, an awesome sermon. It is, this is Peter. Where did Peter learn this stuff? And he was with Christ. Christ taught him. And then the Spirit comes, and this guy who's afraid of a little girl stands up and men of Israel. This is an awesome sermon. And then, um, it's for you and for everybody. And then he continues to preach. Um, 
And says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. And I like this, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This actually, I think, is an allusion to Deuteronomy 32.5, where God is calling Israel a crooked generation who always rejects God. And he's saying, don't be like your forefathers. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Salvation is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both Lord and Christ. Save yourself and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and you, your sins, will be forgiven. And then at the end, we see this. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here's the first fruits of the harvest. First fruits of the harvest. This is not the entire harvest. Remember, first fruits only represent the, the totality of the harvest that is yet to come. It is just the, what you bring forth on that first day. And on that first day, the church went from 120 to 3,120. Well, maybe more or less because it says about. So God, Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of your father. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses. What do you receive power to do? Receive power to be witnesses. Here's Peter, Mr. Denier, standing up and boldly proclaiming, using God's word as his reference point. He's not making this stuff up. He's like, going, this is what God has been saying all along. We're witnesses of these things. Now repent and call upon the name of the Lord. And you will have the same thing that we're having. You're going to have the same Holy Spirit that we've had. So let me uh, wrap up this message with, with this. I just want to talk about the significance of this message, the, the entire three parts. I mean, you know, Peter probably preached it in a couple of minutes, and I took three weeks, but that's the way it gets done. Significance. First of all, Jesus is, a, is historical. That is, he lived, died, and rose again. All right? Jesus is not a made-up figure of somebody's imagination. He is an historical person who lived, died, he really lived, he really died, and he really rose again. He is also, Jesus is also theological. That is, his resurrection and, and ascension actually have significance. Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And that actually has theological, actually has significance to us. And Jesus is contemporary. That is, he is reigning now. And the benefits of the risen, ascended Christ are for you today. So Jesus, the significance is historical. Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Theological, that is, there is, a, there is significance that your sins can be forgiven because Christ is, um, rose from the dead and those benefits, those gains, those privileges are available now. They didn't end at the end of Peter's sermon. They continue on for your sons and your daughters and all who will call that God calls to himself. Folks, the gospel call is clear. The gospel call is urgent. Repent and be baptized, every single one of you, because your sins have been forgiven and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Folks, that's the privilege and I would plead with you that if you've never called upon the name of the Lord, that today you would call upon the name of the Lord and that you would be saved from your sins. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Peter has put this forth. Um, I'm putting it forth. I'm just repeating what Peter did. Peter's just repeating what Christ did. Now is the time to call upon Christ. So I would urge you, I would plead with you, I would beg, I would cajole. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who needs to convict you and cut you to the heart. And if God is cutting you to the heart, and you're wondering, well, gee, what do I do? I've gone all my life, I've acted like a Christian, and people, everybody thinks I'm a Christian. How embarrassing it would be now to admit that I've been going to church all my life and I've never really been a Christian. This is the Holy Spirit calling you. Don't resist. You say, well, what? 
I'm going to have to, what am I going to lose if I come to Christ? What are you going to gain? I tell you this, you will lose nothing. Like the man who found a, a treasure in a field. He went and sold everything to buy that treasure because it was an unsurpassing value. What did it cost him? It cost him everything. What did it cost him? It cost him nothing because he gained so much more than what he gave up. So the gospel is for you, and I pray that this day, if you want to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we would like to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so um, Nelson, who's been presiding over the service, one of our elders would love to talk with you about that. Both he and he and Beth would share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Charlie's in the back, and he's got the red plaid shirt on, and he'll share the gospel with you. And Samuel's in our booth back there. Another elder would love to share the gospel and talk about what it means to follow Christ. I'll be happy to. Me and Simone, Samuel's with his wife, Megan, and Charlie's with Sandra. She's taking care of their daughter, Nora. But folks, and I know there's a lot of other people here who would love to share the gospel and talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ. In other words, folks, don't leave here. If God is cutting you to the heart, do not leave today without talking to somebody in this church. It doesn't have to be an elder. Jim and Tina would love, Elaine would talk to you. And, uh, Father, we give you praise.